It has been uh, two weeks since my last confession. It's been two weeks since my, my last uh, message. But it's also been two months, over two months now, since we were working on the Red Letter Study. You know, we were working on the Red Letter, red, blah, blah, the red letter Study. Yeah, my head got ahead of my tongue. Um, <clears throat> we were doing the Red Letter Study for, I think, two or three months. And then was kicking up so much dust. Then we took a whole month to just do conversations and answer questions. And then, of course, Easter kicked in and this and that and the other thing. So it's, it's been a, a time away. But I want to jump back into it this morning and jump back into the Red Letter Study. For those of you not familiar, um, some editions of the New Testament print Jesus' actual words, his quotations in red ink to set them off from the rest of the text. And so we're going through those sayings of his but we're looking at them from a, a Hebrew Aramaic point of view, from, from that mindset, that culture, that language, and try to understand what his first followers would have understood by the words that were coming out of his mouth. Because if we can get into their headspace, that's the closest we can get to Jesus' intention. If the pictures and the images he was painting in their minds, in their culture, and their language was okay with him, and he didn't take time to redefine it, then that's what we can hopefully glean as we get back as close as we can and re reconstruct the meaning in that sense. So um, we left off with <laughs> the, the, the title of the last uh, one we did was Clarity, Control, and Codependence. Probably usually don't hear those three words together, but uh, um, we'll explain what that was dealing with because everything is about identity. And, and this is where I wanted to come to. All of Jesus' teaching is aimed at entering kingdom. All of it. It's all about entering kingdom. And why is entering kingdom so hard? What makes it so difficult? Well, actually, entering kingdom is a metaphor. You don't actually enter kingdom. He's using kingdom as a word that can evoke a certain mental image and a response, and we can speak about entering it, but really we don't enter kingdom. We actually become kingdom. At one point when Jesus was talking about the children, he said, you know, his handlers were keeping them away from him because he was too big an important man to be dealing with these ragamuffins, right? And he said, no, no, let the children come to me. For such as these are kingdom. Kingdom is not a place. It's not an object. It's not a thing. We become kingdom as we do one important thing. Kingdom is a shift of identity. Or maybe a better way to look at it is kingdom is the realization of our true identity. Kingdom is the discovery it's the acceptance. It's the embrace of who we really are. That's what kingdom is. When we can finally embrace who we really are, when we can finally understand this identity that we have, the quality of life that ensues, the quality of life that we can then live, is what is talked about as kingdom. But the prerequisite is that we have to find this new identity. Why is that so hard? Because in order to find this true identity, we have to relinquish everything that we think we are, everything that we think we have, 
That badge we were singing about just a little while ago, we have to let that go. Those guns we were singing about that we can't shoot anymore, we have to put those in the ground. It's what we think of ourselves, the projections that we maintain. It's the actions that we are just doing as rote behavioral patterns anymore that have served us to a certain extent, have now become the limitations, have now become the blockages to be able to see who we really are once we have started to get an idea of who God really is. We have to let go of everything that we are clinging to in order to see, in order to make this shift, in order to be able to realize our true identity. That's why it's so hard, because this is terrifying for us humans. We've talked about this before. We will do anything and everything not to have to look under the hood of our psyches. We don't want to go down there. And we certainly don't want to give up whatever illusions of power that we have built up in the decades that we've been breathing here. Now, Jesus shows us how to do this. This is what his going into the wilderness was all about. When he gets baptized at the Jordan by his cousin, and then he is impelled, the Spirit impels him. It's not a gentle word. He was driven into the wilderness. There was something that was compelling him to leave everything behind, his career, his family, everything that he had built so far in his life, to go out and figure this out. And it almost kills him. It takes him to the point of exhaustion. It takes him to the point of starvation. And yes, the 40 is a symbolic number, but however many years he spent, it wasn't something that was just casual. It was absolutely intentional, and it took everything in him to let go of whatever he was carrying around so that he could come back from that experience and say his greatest expression of identity, I and the Father are one. In other words, just like John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he can increase, Jesus had to decrease as his own separate entity so that the Father could be completely taken over in him. And I know this is mind-blowing because we think of Jesus co-equal with the Father. That's what the Trinity is all about. But as a human being, he needed to go through the same process that we need to go through. Scripture tells us that. He was human in every way that we are. And so he is the model and the way shower of how this has to be done. And he's just not doing it for us. He's telling us, you need to do the things that I'm doing, and you will if you're really following me. And so this model of him going into the wilderness is what it looks like. Now, we don't have to leave our homes and our jobs. It's an interior process. But it has to be done if we're really going to be able to flip that switch and realize that who we are is so much deeper than anything that we thought we knew, just with our egoic consciousness. And this is played out with Nicodemus and with the rich young ruler and with a Samaritan woman. And those were the three that we looked at. And when you think about it, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he's asking for a wilderness experience, but he doesn't realize what he's asking for because he has a concept of his own identity. He is an educated man. He is a ruler of the Jews. He has a lot to lose. He comes by night with his talit over his head so nobody can see him. But what he's looking for is clarity. That's what he's clinging to. For him, it's about clarity. For him, it's about certainty. 
if he could get clear on this, if he could get certain on this, then he could make it his. And Jesus is telling it doesn't work that way. It's like the wind. It just blows through. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. He's trying to get him to understand that it is his clinging to clarity that is the limitation. That's his badge. That's what he needs to let go of. When he goes and he talks to the, when the rich young ruler comes to him, what must I do to obtain eternal life? He's looking for a control point. He's someone who's been very successful in his life. He's rich. He's got a powerful position. He's a position of influence. He's looking for a control point. He has followed the law assiduously his whole life. Jesus knows this. He sees the sincerity. He loves him, the scripture tells us. But as if, he's, if he's looking just for something else to obey, something else in essence to control, then he's not going to be able to get there. What does he tell him to do? Sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. And of course, he's not ready to do that. Nicodemus is not ready to understand. He just doesn't get it. The rich young man gets it, but he's not ready to do it. He's not ready to let go of his guns yet. He can't do it. He walks away sad. And when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, he's trying to give her the living water. And of course, she misunderstands and over-literalizes and thinks it's some way of saving her, making that trip from the village out to the well every day. And she's the one with five husbands, and the one that she's living with now is not her husband. And so she is moving from codependency to codependency, looking in relationships and looking through all of these connections, some way to make her ends meet, some way to keep going forward, some way to keep a sense of meaning in her life. What are they holding on to? What are we holding on to? What are our badges? Is it clarity? Is it control? Is it codependence? Is it something else? Because whatever we're holding on to, is what is keeping us from kingdom, keeping us from this realization of a deeper identity. It's whatever you say about something, right? I would be lost without dot, 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 fill in the blank, right? I'm nothing without. I can't get anywhere without. Whatever that thing you put in that space is, That's what you identify with now. That is your badge. That is your identity. But our true identity is never anything and never based on anything that we can lose, that we can ever be without. And so anything that we are clinging to that we can lose and everything we're clinging to we will eventually lose is not who we really are. And we will never be free. We will never live free from fear until we know who we really are. Until we know that who we really are, our true identity, can never be taken from us. That's the only way that the fear subsides. When we realize that who we are, what we have in our deepest recesses, can never be taken from us. That death can't even take it from us. That's when life can be lived at a different pitch. That's when life can be lived in a way that lets things and resources and love just flow through us because we have something that we can never lose. We need to find out what that is. Who are you? I'm not going to actually do that to you, but I do it a lot when I'm talking one-on-one with someone. Who are you? And I let them squirm in the seat. 
And I don't know. Say anything. I mean, tell me who you are. What typically comes out are the roles they play, the accomplishments that they have achieved, and the attributes that they have as a person. I'm a loyal person. I'm an angry person. I'm an optimistic person. But all of that can be taken from us. You're optimistic until the next trauma, right? <laughs> then where did that go? You know? You're loyal until the next betrayal. Your accomplishments all can be taken from you. You're a sportsman until you break a leg or you get too old to play. You're a mother until the nest empties or maybe a child dies, God forbid. Where does your identity go? All of that can be taken from us. Who are you? That's the question. But the only way that we can answer it in words is with things that will be lost. And some, some people will say, well, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. Great. But what does that mean to you? And as soon as you put it in words, it has already changed from the pure experience that kingdom offers, which cannot be put into words. Our true identity can't be spoken, and as soon as we do, it becomes an object that can be lost. That's just the way it is. This is what Jesus means by the wind. You can't see it. You can't manage it. You can't do anything with it except blow with it. That's what he's trying to get across to Nicodemus. That's what he's trying to get across to us. It's so slippery. It's so difficult. But when you've experienced it, then you know. But is there enough here to motivate you to do what it takes to have that experience so that you know? That's the question. We can't just learn. It can't just be intellectual. There has to be a doing that takes us into a pure experience. So what is the point of the spiritual journey? What is the point of the journey that Jesus is advocating for us? What is his way? What's the point of that? It's just to find our true identity. To find the truth that makes us free. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He's saying, he's saying in that statement, he has no separate identity apart from the Father, apart from the ground of ultimate being. He has no identity. He said, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do what the Father does through me. Try to get in between the lines there and understand how deep that goes. There is no sense of self except in the Father's presence. Do you see that? Do you see how radically different that is from us trying to imagine an, an identity that is separate from, distinct from? Jesus is saying that doesn't exist. When he's asked who this woman's husband will be in the, in the Olam Haba, the next world, if you remember that story, Jesus says, no, you don't understand. No one's given in marriage in the next world. They live like the angels. Everything is one. There isn't that sense of separate identity. Everyone, it's like uh, Vernon was saying last week, you know, God's favorite kid. Everyone is God's favorite kid. Everyone is God's best friend. Everyone will be our best friends. That would be that kind of unity there. This is the radical shift that Jesus is trying to get across to us. And I'm throwing a bunch of words at it, but it doesn't come close. Maybe it comes a little bit closer, but it doesn't get it because it's an experience that we need to have. Jesus' way is the way of relinquishing all and everything that can be relinquished, right? So only that which can't be relinquished remains. Kind of 
of a process of elimination, I suppose. But once you have agreed to the process of letting go of everything that can be let go, what is left at the bottom of that dog pile can't be let go of because it is God's presence. It's the mirror reflecting you, as Richard Rohr said. Jesus' way is relinquishing everything that can be relinquished so that all that's left is that which can't be relinquished. This is what we're talking about today. I want to spend some time in John's Gospel because John's Gospel is all about identity. The theme of John's Gospel and the purpose of John's Gospel is to show us and to help us believe in Jesus' identity. To have faith in Jesus' identity as one with the Father, identical with the Father. To help us trust that identity. That's what it's all about. And try to understand him as the Son of God. But we need to understand the Son of God, because that may mean something to us in our Western minds. But to an ancient Jew, the Son of the King was like the avatar of the King. If the King's Son was standing in front of you, it was as if the King were standing in front of you. The son was imbued with the king's presence, his authority. Everything that the king brought to bear was present in the son as the son was in front of you. When you were speaking to the king's son, you were speaking to the king. That's how Jesus is the son of God. When we are looking at Jesus, we are looking at the father. He directly said that, right, to Philip? You don't need to see the Father. You're seeing me right now. That's the identity that John is trying to get across in his gospel. Now, John's gospel is unlike the other three. <clears throat> Sorry, been sick the last three days since my first day speaking. <sighs> Rented lips. The three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. That means that they see with one eye. They, they see things the same. They are basically chronological stories of Jesus' life from birth to death, or in, in Mark's case, he doesn't deal with the birth part. He deals for the public ministry forward. But they all are looking chronologically. There's a lot of similarities between them. There's a lot of differences, too. But John stands apart from those three because John is not being structured chronologically. He's not trying to tell a chronological story. John is structured around themes that he is trying to get across. It's highly stylized. Sometimes it's called an inverted spiral, which... uh, may mean anything or nothing, but the idea is instead of moving in a straight line from a point that he makes to the next point and the next point, as we typically do in, in any of our communication, and that the, the uh, synoptic gospels typically do, John will make a point, and then he'll circle around and then come back to that point and expand it and develop it further and circle around again and again and again and keep coming back to points that he's made in order to expand them as he goes. Whole different kind of structure. That's why it's been so difficult to harmonize all four Gospels. We'll talk a little bit more about that with a specific experience, or a specific, a specific um, incident in the, in the passage. Most scholars see that the basic outline of John is four parts. There's first the prologue, and you're probably familiar with that, that uh, hymn of the word that happens right at the beginning. So John 1, verse 1 to 18 is this prologue. 
and the word was with God and, and, and so on and so forth. The idea is that Jesus is the word, Jesus is with God. Jesus identified with God in this mystical way. And then believers who believe in that way, who become one with Jesus, then become children of God in the sense of becoming one with the Father. The word becomes flesh, Jesus becomes incarnate, and the Son reveals the Father to us. So that prologue is giving this main point of the whole gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then that, is, that point's going to be expanded in the next two sections. The next section is typically called the Book of Signs because it, it contains seven miracles, seven signs that Jesus performs. And this would be chapter 1, starting with verse 19 through chapter 12, verse 50. And this includes the wedding at Cana, which is paired with the temple incident, the cleansing of the temple. It's the dialogue with Nicodemus that we were just talking about. It is his healing of the royal official's son that we're going to talk about today, which is paired with his dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. The healing at the Bethesda pool, we've talked about that several times, where he heals the infirm man. The feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse, conflicts in Jerusalem, healing the man who was born blind, the good shepherd discourse, the raising of Lazarus, the anointing at Bethany, plots to kill Jesus, so on and so forth. It ends right at the Last Supper. And then from the Book of Signs, we move to the Book of Glory. Scholars' names for it, right? Starting at chapter 13, verse 1, going to chapter 20, verse 31, which is the first ending of the book of John. Did you know there are two endings to the book of John? Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. See, just a little teaser there for you. So it starts right with the, with, the Lord, with the Last Supper, which is five chapters in John. He gives five full chapters, 13 to 17, um, for the, the Last Supper. It gets uh, a paragraph in some of the synoptics, but it's a big deal to John. And so in the Last Supper, there's a washing of the feet, there's a foretelling of Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial, farewell discourses, and then the great prayer of Jesus at uh, John 17. Then there's all the passion narrative, the arrest and the hearings and the trials and the crucifixion, the burial and the death, and then the resurrection appearances, especially to Mary and to Thomas. And then there's an epilogue, and that would be chapter 21, uh, 1 to 25. And most, um, most scholars believe that this final chapter was added later. It wasn't identical with the first part of John. And the reason is that there are these two endings that basically say the same thing. At the end of, of chapter 20, um, the evangelist says that these are all the things that Jesus did, but these are the ones that we've recorded for you so that you may believe. And at the end of chapter 21, these are all the things that Jesus did. In fact, all of the libraries of the world couldn't hold everything that Jesus did. So he kind of one-ups the, the ending before. If it's an addition, it's a really early addition because we don't even have an extant or existing manuscript that doesn't contain John 21, which that would say, well, then that means it's got to be you know, authentic, right? Or it's got to be original, right? Well, they've got their internal evidence. Either way, what's in the epilogue is a great story of the the men going back fishing again and Jesus on the shore. Have you caught any fish? No. Well, throw your nets over on the other side and they recognize that it's him and he's cooking breakfast. I mean, I love that story. I don't want to do John without chapter 21, right? But then it comes right back to his identity. 
you know? Do you love me, Peter? Over and over again, feed my sheep, tend my flock. That point that he started out with in the prologue is then recapped and restated in the epilogue. And so here you have this, this tapestry that John is weaving, and it's all centered in identity. Those seven signs that Jesus performs are all showing us over and over again Jesus' mastery over nature, Jesus' mastery over elements, and Jesus' identity with God. So changing the water into wine at Cana, healing the official's son at Cana, healing the infirm man, feeding 5,000, walking on water, healing a man blind from birth, and raising Lazarus. Those are the seven signs that John relates. And of course, we know seven is the number of spiritual perfection. And again, he's saying these aren't the only signs, but these are the ones he includes, giving us that perfect number. And you say, well, there is one more, right? Number eight is the resurrection itself. And eight is the number of rebirth. And so that makes perfect sense. And scattered throughout John are the seven I am's. Have you ever heard of the seven I am's? You know, these great statements of Jesus' identity. Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John. And there's an interesting way of, of that being uh, expressed in Aramaic. He would say, ena, ena, lachma, tachaye. Ena, ena, just means, literally, if we translated that, I, I, bread of life. But the double I, ena, ena, is an emphatic way of trying to express. It's like putting it in all caps. I am, pay attention. This is who I am. I'm telling you something real important right now. Listen up. I am the bread of life. Lachma dehaye. Lachma here is metaphor, right? It's not just bread and what sustains us physically, but we're talking here about all provision. Everything that we need as human beings, everything that is physical, everything that is psychological, emotional, spiritual, all of that provision comes from one source. Jesus says, I am that source. I am one with that source. It's like shalom, which is the, we, we translate it as peace, but it means the greatest amount of abundance and, and, and prosperity and, and peace and calm. Same idea here. Jesus is that. He says, I am the light of the world. Nura, the alma. Ena, ena, right? But nura, light, is not just clarity, but it's also understanding. It's wisdom. It's everything that we need, once again, to be able to make sense, to make meaning of life, to understand the way life works. He says, I am the door of the sheepfold. Tara, door, which means door or gate, but it also means an opening or to enlarge an opening. It can mean a portal between worlds, in this case, between heaven and earth. Jesus is that portal. He is that liminal space, right? That threshold. He is where we access. He is where we understand the journey that we're taking. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the shepherd, of course, is the protector. The shepherd is the way shower. He is the one who would never lead the flocks astray, who would never let even one out of a hundred go astray. He will leave the 99 and go find the one and bring that one back. None of us is going to be abandoned because he is that good shepherd. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, which means he is eternal life. He makes all things new as God speaks in Revelation. 
but he is the life that he is making new as well. He is showing us what that looks like. I am the true vine. And in the metaphor of the vine and the branches, it's connecting to the essence, connecting again to the source, to that dhamma, that essence of God, to be connected to that. And finally, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the path. He is the way of being able to find the Father, and he is the truth that we find, and he is the life that ensues. He is all of that. And so in those seven I am's, those statements of identity that Jesus gives through John, is mirroring the Father's nature. We know the Father through Jesus. In those seven I am's, we are seeing Jesus tell us how the Father operates in our lives why there doesn't have to be any fear if we can actually see that identity. So all these themes of identity, how do we come to know them? How do we come to know them in ourselves? How do we come to believe or trust this identity? See, this is Jesus' concern in all of his teaching. He's always trying to get every light bulb on over everyone's head that he's talking to. When he works with people, He's looking at how this can happen for them. And so let's look at his first two signs and see how that operates. The first one is the, uh, the miracle at Cana. So at John 2, starting at verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. There's a couple of things here that maybe we can point out just to make it uh, come alive for you a little bit more. On the third day, what is he talking about there? On the third day of what? You know, the only thing that, that makes any sense, it's on the third day of the wedding. Jewish weddings lasted an entire week. Now think about that. You have the wedding at your home, you're inviting the whole neighborhood over, and they stay for a week. Cool, huh? You've got to have enough food for them. You've got to have enough water for them. You've got to have enough wine for them. On the third day, something happens to the wine. It's only the third day. They've got four more days to go. Right? But on the third day of the wedding, the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Just a little aside here. Mary is never named in the Gospel of John. She is always just referred to as the mother of Jesus. And John himself is never named. He's always just the disciple who Jesus loved, or the one who put his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. I don't know if that really means anything of any value or relevance. You kind of get that one for free. But uh, it's just an interesting thing, um, you know, why he would not name them. But they are never named. Jesus and the disciples and Mary are all, all uh, invited to this wedding. Most likely, it's probably Miriam, Mary's relatives. You know, everybody was kind of related to each other in, in a certain way. Uh, and so it was probably some kind of family affair. And when the wine ran out on the third day, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. That's kind of rude, don't you think? (laughs) If you put it back into the uh, Aramaic, it's a little bit nicer. The word he uses for woman, which sounds so stark to our ears, is anta. Anta would be like ma'am or senora. in in Spanish would be, it is a very respectful term, and it also shows some affection. But at the same time, literally what he says is, anta, woman, senora, what to me and to you? 
That would be the way the, the line actually reads in Aramaic. What to me and to you? It's actually a Hebrew idiom that kind of means, what is it that you expect of me exactly? What do you want me to do? Why are you involving me in this? It's kind of that sort of idea. Now, is Mary expecting him to do a miracle here? I mean, it's unclear. We can't know for sure. She wants him to fix it. She wants him to do something. It's not really clear that she's expecting him to do an absolute supernatural miracle. But notice her response. It's so classic, right? He, he seems to be putting her down and putting her in her place. And what does she say? Do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> she tells it. It's like the perfect mom response. She knows her son. She knows he's not going to leave her hanging. Not only that, this family who has run out of wine, that is like a major faux pas in uh, Eastern hospitality. They were supposed to be prepared for the full seven days, and there could even be legal liability involved for them if they were not able to fulfill what the uh, social contract um, stated for everybody. So his mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, you do it. So there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish customs of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And when you think about it, you had to pull all this water from the well, right? That means you had to have these containers all filled up because they needed to last, and then you had to refill them as you would need to during the week. But they had to be there with this water because they would always wash their hands before they ate. They would wash their feet as they came in. And when they left and came back, they would wash their feet again. All those purification rites, not to mention doing the dishes, you know, because everybody's eaten over and over and over again day after day. And so these water pots are really important. You know, and they probably were that big. The actual word there is rabbein, which is a, a unit of measure that's about nine gallons. And the text says that these were two or three rabbein each. And so you got 19 gallons to maybe whatever, whatever. So 20 or 30 is a pretty good estimate. So they're big, right? They got a lot of water in them. Jesus says to the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter did not know, um, wait, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of Jesus' signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and the people believed in him. Now, it's important to know that this story is also juxtaposed with the cleansing of the temple. Now, the cleansing of the temple in all the synoptics happens during Holy Week, during the Passion Week, at the very end of Jesus' life. When he comes back after Palm Sunday, the next day, Fig Monday, is when he goes in and busts up the temple. Here it's happening in John at the very beginning. And, you know, conservative scholars have just had their minds blown trying to harmonize this. Some have even said Jesus cleansed the temple twice because they couldn't figure out to, what to do with John's account that happens at such a crazy time. John isn't concerned with chronology. Of course it happened once, well, probably happened once. We don't know for sure. But the idea is, is putting this cleansing of the temple together with the, with the changing of the water to wine. Wine was a symbol of joy and celebration symbol of life to the Jews. The contrast between what Jesus is doing in this little town in Cana and the barrenness 
and the death inside the temple in Jerusalem, which was the, the, the centerpiece of Jewish life, that stark distance, that stark difference is what is on display here. Jesus is the source of life. The Jewish system had lost that connection with God. And this is what is also speaking to this theme of identity. The people believed in Jesus' identity because of this first sign. And then the second sign, healing this nobleman's son at John 4, starting at verse 46, therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So this second sign is, made to, is meant to connect with the first sign. They both take place in, in Cana, in Galilee. And the second sign mentions the first one both at the beginning and at the end. And so it's trying to tie the two together in our minds, which is important for us to understand. Getting those two together. The, the similarities of the two signs, Jesus has just come back to Galilee. A request is made of him. He initially deflects the request, but the petitioner persists, and then he grants the request, and the people believe. Now, this royal official, Abed in Aramaic, is a servant or a functionary of Herod Antipas, who is the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, which was Transjordan. They were hated by the Jewish people. The, the, the four kings that were placed by Rome over the people were seen as Roman collaborators. They were practically as oppressive and corrupt as the Romans were themselves. They hated the kings. They hated their, their court, their functionaries, their servants. And so what is going on here is that this story is paired with a Samaritan woman, another person absolutely hated by the Jews, the Samaritans. Jesus is shown here crossing boundaries. He's working with outcasts who believe his identity at his word. The Samaritan woman and all the Samaritans of her village don't get any sign at all. And the ruler, the uh, servant here, the functionary here, believes before he sees that his son has been healed. He just believes Jesus at his word and goes home and finds out, yes, he has been. But how about the Jews? Jesus' own people. Jesus says, unless you, and that's a plural you, unless all you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Jesus, Jesus knows that the people do not really trust or embrace or accept his identity. They're awed by the signs and the miracles that he's performing, the healings but they really don't trust or embrace him. He knows this. He knows that they're fickle. He knows they're going to turn on him. He knows that they don't have any depth to their faith. 
And yet these outcasts do. This is the rub that's going on here. Now for us, it's easy for us to let these miracle stories kind of sit in the past at arm's length, at a safe distance for us so that they don't really touch us. We read them, but we don't see how they relate. But what are they teaching us now? What can we learn from them now? And I think the place to look is who were the first responders to Jesus? Who were the ones who responded to him, who embraced him, who followed him, who risked something to be with him? Who were those people? At John 1, verse 11, the the text tells us Jesus came to his own, the Jews, but the Jews did not receive him. In John 2, Jesus doesn't trust the shallow faith that he finds in Jerusalem over just the signs that he is performing because they're still looking for certainty. They're looking for that burning bush that they can hang on to. They're not prepared yet to blow with the wind. In John 3, Nicodemus can't understand the deeper spiritual identity, the unnamed spiritual identity that Jesus is trying to show him. In John 4, the Samaritans and the royal servant we just talked about believe without or before any sign has been performed. They believe at Jesus' word. They believe because they've absorbed something of who he is. In John 6 and 7, Jesus is rejected by his fellow Galileans. In fact, he's run out of town and practically stoned. He has to escape. And he's also rejected by his own family, his own brothers. They think he's crazy. They want to have him committed, basically. They want to take him home because he's embarrassing the family. But he's rejected by both his own family and his own people, the Galileans. And so what this whole text is showing us is that the embrace of Jesus' radically different identity is not based in signs, not based in wonders. It's not based in anything that we can take with certainty. We're not going to get that from Jesus. It's not based in our religion. It's not based in our pedigree, our ethnicity, It's not based in our education. It's not based in the law, how well we follow the law. Those who were the most educated, those who were the most law-abiding, those who were the most elite, the most wealthy, were the ones who were the least interested in Jesus, the ones who were the least responsive to Jesus. That seems counterintuitive. Why would that be? Because the more that you're invested in the status quo, the more that you are going to resist change. Right? All your investment is in this system. Jesus is tearing the system down from the inside out. If you're invested in a system that Jesus is actively tearing down, then Jesus is a threat to you, not your savior. You're not going to respond to him. Why would you? Jesus, of course, is tearing down everything that can be relinquished. So only that which can't be relinquished remains. That's his task. That's what he's doing. He did for himself. He's showing us, always practically begging us to follow him to go through that same process. Because if your identity, whatever you think of yourself, is wrapped in relinquishable paper, so to speak, (laughs) 
then Jesus is your threat. And that thing that you're clinging to is the eye of your needle. And Jesus tells us the camel would more likely go through an eye of a needle than for this wealthy person, this person who is still clinging to something that is relinquishable, can enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. So who are always the first responders? Who are the ones who are always going to respond to Jesus first? They are the ones who are already marginalized, right? The ones that already have no stake in the status quo, both physically and emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. They see themselves that way. They are humble. They have a sense of who they really are. They have a sense of the relationship they have with life, with each other, with God. They recognize their vulnerability. They recognize their dependence. They're not afraid of their dependence. Their reliance on God is what they can finally cling to. They are the meek. They are the poor in spirit of the Beatitudes, right? They are the ones who are closest to the ground. The ones that respond to Jesus are already there in that place. They are the poor and the outcasts, the ones who have nothing. They are the ones who are able to make this shift in identity because they're not clinging to anything already. That's not to say that the rich cannot do it. Take a look at Nicodemus later on in John. Take a look at Joseph of Arimathea. Take a look at some of those who make this monumental shift because they are willing to finally relinquish the things that don't matter, not externally, interiorly, to cut the cord of identity with those things. And it comes right back, always, to our own sense of identity. Who do we think we are? Where do we see the source of our power lying? That truly is our identity. The things that we trust, the last thing that we're clinging to is what defines us. And what defines us, whether it's clarity, control, codependence, or anything else, that is what we see as ourselves. What do you fear to lose the most? Think about that. What do you fear losing? What do you jealously guard, even in your sleep at night? This is your eye of the needle. This is the limitation. This is the glass ceiling that keeps you from experiencing what Jesus would have us all experience. Because it's not enough for just Jesus to realize his identity. He said we need to do exactly the same thing. And he said we could and would do that, and greater things than that. He said that we need to find the truth of ourselves that makes us free. When nothing is left to relinquish, then we can see the Father as the Father really is. And we can see ourselves in connection with the Father. And we can find that truth of ourselves. Jesus showed us the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth of the Father's identity that we are trying to understand. Is that enough for us? As we read all this, as we study all this, is that enough for us to begin following this way of relinquishment because that's what it's going to take? Is it enough for us to finally become a first responder? Well, if you're waiting for a sign, then you're not ready. (laughs) 
if you're waiting for kingdom, Jesus said, the waiting is over. The kingdom is already here. Are we willing to take a risk? Are we willing to take a step? Are we willing to consider that maybe we don't have all the answers? The first thing to let go of is our sense of certainty in everything except the pure experience of God in our prayer life, in our relationships with each other, and with everything that we experience in life around us. Those are our first steps. Let's become first responders. Let's pray. Father, there is just so much here, and yet it all points to the same thing over and over again. Thank you for continuing to hammer at this one point for us so that we can hopefully understand this is where it all lies. It lies right at the crux of everything that we seem to value most, that we are most afraid to let go of. Help us to see that it is in letting go that we are going to find you catching us. Whatever it takes, Father, help us to be ready to do that thing, to trust you, that you really will be there to catch us. Thank you for everyone around us who has modeled this and mirrored this for us. Thank you for scriptures. Thank you for yourself in human form, everything that you've given us so we can find our way home to you. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand.